in our uh, exposition of the Apostles' Creed. We confess as we do as a redeemed people um, our faith, our belief in one true God, uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've looked at that over the weeks. Uh, We believe in the Holy Christian Church or the Holy Catholic Church, meaning the worldwide body of redeemed believers and the unity of all believers throughout time, um, the saints that have been glorified in the saints that yet dwell upon this earth, and we're part of that one glorious body. I believe in the communion of saints, and today I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's part of the confession. And in order to move into our subject, we have to begin with a presupposition. And that is that forgiveness presupposes the reality, the actuality of guilt. Guilt is defined as having committed an offense. It's also defined as as feeling, a feeling that uh, we've done something wrong. And according to the word of God, guilt is a result of sin. Scripture says the problem is sin. Amen? Amen. The problem is sin. And if you don't get the problem right, you'll never get the diagnosis to the problem. And then you'll miss everything else that Scripture says. Not able to comprehend the gospel itself. Now, in, throughout time, Scripture has been, or in Scripture, from Scripture, Sin has been pictured as, as an archer um, releasing an arrow from his bow and missing the target. You ever heard that? Sin is missing the mark. And that's the simplest uh, definition of sin. It's to miss the mark. Uh, but the target that is missed is not an attempt to hit a bullseye on a straw-filled target with a literal arrow. Uh, the, the universality of sin is make, missing the mark of God's glory. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So for those you know, who, who, who claim that you know, to err is human, nobody's perfect, in one sense, I mean, is an acknowledgement to the universality of sin. Sin, the scripture says, is a violation of God's law. 1 John 3 verse 4 says that sin is what? Lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So the creed here acknowledges God as Father Almighty. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He is the creator. So, So naturally, he is, in relation to his creatures, the creator. Amen? Makes sense. Pretty simple. But there's another relation that God has to his creatures. Besides that, it is Father. He's also represented in Scripture as King. He is the ruler. He's the King of the universe. He is the governor of his universe. He creates it. He governs it. 
And in governing his universe, Almighty God, in orderly fashion, imposes laws upon all his creatures. And then he requires detailed obedience to those laws. The planet, for instance, never deviates from its appointed orbit. Amen? It must obey. God set that law into order, and it must obey. The insect, the bird, the beast, all live within strict accordance to their instincts given by God himself. And they accord with the laws set in order by their maker. So all visible, creature have, all visible creatures in the universe have these laws within their formation from which they cannot swerve. All agree on that, amen? They cannot swerve. So these so-called laws of nature simply describe God's normal way of ordering um, his universe. And these are laws that are expressions of his sovereign will. God's sovereign will, if we think about it like this, we have his sovereign will. There's nothing that will impede his sovereign will. There's nothing that can take away from his sovereign will being carried out. There's nothing that can add to his sovereign will being carried out. Yet within his sovereign will is his commanded will. And we as fallen creatures have violated that. So God has a standard. And that standard is ultimate perfection. His commanded will is ultimate perfection. So his law is is the ultimate standard of righteousness. It's the supreme norm of judging right and wrong. He is the sovereign judge. He's the sovereign ruler. He's the sovereign authority. And he imposes his obligations upon his creatures. We are his creatures. He commands our obedience. He binds our conscience. And then he rightly judges disobedience. Everyone's guilty of violating perfect obedience. Romans 3.19 says the whole world is guilty before God. Guilty. Now guilt has, has in it the reference to a violation of a standard. The violation is the violation of his law. The whole world, Scripture says, has violated God's law. Now, some will respond, of course, well, what about those who've never heard God's law? Well, Scripture says in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, that they have the law written where? In their hearts. The law's written in their hearts. They have a conscience. Conscience says, uh, uh, uh. You shouldn't. So the scripture says the conscience both accuses and excuses. And men violate it. So those without the law have the law written upon their hearts. They violated that law written upon the heart, violating conscience, disregarding conscience, transgressing transgressing conscience. If you want to ask about the pygmy in the depths of whatever jungle... What about them? They have a conscience, and they're guilty before God. So actual sin consists of breaking any law 
That is, any law of God made known to us by way of Scripture, conscience, or just simple reason. So it assumes many forms. Guilt does. There are sins of thought. There are sins of word. There are sins of deed. There are sins of commission and omission. That is, sins in in doing that which God forbids, and sins of omission, meaning to to leave undone uh, that which God commands. And these are sins by which we are tempted by way of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The devil manipulates the first two, and men sin. And there's, there, there are sins that are uh, in direct violation um, to God and his will. There are sins that are wrong to our neighbors. There are sins that, that ruin ourselves as God's creatures. There are sins of pride. There are sins of covetousness. There are sins of gluttony, of anger, of envy, on and on and on. Guilt, 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 guilty. You encouraged this morning? Got to build up for the forgiveness of sins, amen? You're like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> this is why we can rejoice as sinners saved by grace. We're going to learn a lot about grace this morning in the, in the message from Exodus 19. So, needless to say, the Bible takes sin seriously, amen? Very seriously because the Bible takes God seriously. And the Bible is the word of God. God also takes God's, or scripture also takes seriously God's image bearers. Mankind. We bear the image of the invisible God. Thus, the Decalogue provides what we know as the moral law. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, covers loving God and loving neighbor perfectly. That's the outline. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do you know how to do that? Well, the Decalogue describes that for us. You know, what does it look like to love God with all your heart? To love your neighbor as yourself? Look, look at the Ten Commandments. So when we sin against God, we do violence to his holiness. And when we sin against neighbor, we do violence against the image of God. So we're guilty. Of sinning against God and in sinning against our fellow image bearers. Sin in the Bible is described as a transgression of the law. To transgress is to cross over, is to cross boundaries. When I was a paper boy, as a young whippersnapper, uh, we didn't have fences like you have in neighborhoods now. So you could cut through yards and cut through blocks and shorten up time on your route. And people who had nice grass, you knew they cared for that grass. And as you step, before you step on the grass, my conscience was somewhat violated in knowing, you know, I probably shouldn't step on their grass. But I didn't necessarily transgress anything. It's a violated conscience. And then as you make your way through, you eventually form a path into their yard, and you actually grow in courage. To, to ride your bike in the same path. <laughs> so we had winter where I real winter where I lived, and 
You couldn't ride your bicycle in the winter for the most part, but in the springtime you could. One day, as I'm passing through, there's a sign there. It says, do not step on the grass. <laughs> now if I step on the grass, what am I doing? Transgressing. First it was a violation of conscience. Now there's law there. Boom, do not. I'm not going to tell you whether or not I did, but <laughs> to do so would be to transgress the law. <laughs> Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were by nature children of wrath. We were born dead in trans- transgressions and sins, trespasses and sins. We transgress God's law. In, I, in uh, Psalm 51, verse 5, David cries out, this is in response this is a, a psalm of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba and, and Uriah, murdering Uriah, committing adultery with Bathsheba. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Conceived in sin. How is that possible? Well, it's because Adam's sin, the first man, his sin, his guilt was imputed to the whole human race. We're in Adam. We're in the first Adam. When he fell, we all fell. He's the representative head of humanity. When he fell, we fell. And due to that imputed guilt, that imputed sin we inherited from Adam, we're guilty before God. We share now in this fallen human DNA. Amen? We're born. David says, David knew it. I was conceived in sin. So the fountain of life was was poisoned at its very source. So when Adam begat children, he bore children in his likeness. And therefore, when we get to Romans 5, we read the theology of it. We read this and it says, by one man sin entered the world. And death by sin. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Spiritual death happened immediate, immediately. And physical death happened hundreds of years later. Death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So original sin results in actual sin. Amen? We share in Adam's DNA. We're fallen. The only way to be delivered is by faith and trust in the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. So every day we commit actual sins. And this this is sin before God that cries out for judgment because he's just. Punishment. It must be punished. Sin must be punished. And the scripture says, if, if, if we dare say we have no sin, what? We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. And there are people who think that they are not sinners. What a tragedy. So but before the bar of God, we're all guilty. We're guilty sinners. The Bible defines sin also as rebellion. In 1 Samuel 15, 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. Rebellion. We're rebels. 
My, my daughter-in-law dared ask my wife at breakfast last week in Los Angeles. <laughs> when do they start to listen? <laughs> Talking about our grandson, when do they start to obey? <laughs> Felt sorry for the dear young, young girl. My wife laughed. She says, it has to be taught. Obedience has to be taught. We're rebels at heart. Proverbs 17.11 says, An evil man seeks only rebellion. Seeks only rebellion. So guilt of violation to God's law requires punishment. And yet, although every man and woman is guilty, the scripture says that there are actually fools who mock at guilt. And they are fools. Proverbs 14, 9. So sin leads to moral degradation. The Bible refers to that as, un- as, as uncleanness. We're unclean before God. That's the word the Bible uses, uncleanness. Therefore, due to man's guiltiness of sin, he's therefore alienated from God. We were once what? Alienated. From God. We're born into this world under the grip of sin, and we eventually grow, right, physically, mentally, emotionally, and we become then gripped by guilt. Gripped by guilt. Guilt brings anxiety. The world is full of people who are full of anxiety, it's the product of guilt. Inner turmoil over the consequence of sin, whether they acknowledge it or not. Mankind is continually trying to escape a guilty conscience. And it shows up in religion. It shows up in in, in psychology. Man's attempt to escape guilt. And all along the way, they they continue the tent, but by the grace of God, that they're not guilty sinners. A lot of this guilt is now passed off in our day. It's not your fault. It's your dad's fault. It's your mama's fault. You were emotionally abused. You can't take the blame for this. Right? So the clause of the creed here, I believe in the forgiveness of sin, which presupposes the reality, the actuality of guilt, we're all guilty before God, is a problem that mankind cannot escape. As hard as they try, they, they, they can try to suppress the truth of God. They, they try to suppress a screaming conscience. They want to put a hand up to God's law, whatever, whatever it is. All are guilty. They're all trapped as guilty and condemned. So now God's provision for the problem. Now that you're taken down into the gutter, now you can lift your eyes up and look to the remedy. Amen? Amen. How can you preach the gospel without that? Jesus said this. On the last night, hours before his death, Okay, this is Passover, the Jews. 
and they're, they're breaking bread, and they're sitting around the table. And he said this, Matthew 26, 28. This, he lifts the cup up, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for what? The forgiveness of sins. Here's the ah, sigh of relief. The forgiveness of sins. So forgiveness is to release something. To release. And it's only through Christ that comes this sweet release. Amen. That's why, you're, that's why you got up this morning. Because of this reality. Amen. This is, why, this is why you, whether you felt like it or not, made your way in. And why others will make their way in next hour. It's because of this. People need to have their sins and guilt forgiven. When, pre- when Peter preached Cornelius, when, when he approached Cornelius and preached, he was called to preach, and the Holy Spirit showed him that he was to go seek out this individual, and yet he gets down to the gate of the house, and, and there's two who are seeking him. So here's God at work, amen? Here's God at work. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter, as he preached referred to our Lord Jesus Christ, and he said, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To Him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. There's the remedy to the problem. Because Jesus, now having died, having burst forth in resurrection power from that tomb, has since ascended. And then he descended, that is, the Holy Spirit, he sent the Holy Spirit to descend upon and in his people. And Peter, as a recipient of that grace and of that power, preaches his message, the Lord's message. So Peter points to him, Jesus, he points to Christ, and he says, all the Old Testament prophets, they were proclaiming him. They were pointing to him. This is all, the remedy has always been in the mind of God. We see it first spoken in Genesis 3, verse 15, amen? Immediately upon the fall of man, God made that promise, that seed promise. It was actually a promise to Satan. Between your seed and her seed, one shall come who shall crush your head. You shall bruise his heel. So there's there's the promise. And then the Bible from Genesis 3.15 on begins to unfold that glorious plan of redemption. That's what the Bible is all about. The fulfillment of that promise. So he, Peter, proclaims his name proclaims his person, and that whoever believes in him, that is to trust in him, by faith, receives forgiveness of sins. It's not simply to acknowledge him, it's to believe, it's to to, to believe him, to trust. So Jesus indicates right there in Matthew 26, verse 28, why he came into the world. For sins. He came into the world for sins. His work had to do with sin. Isn't that remarkable? It's amazing. 
So in God's mercy, he came in such a way as to deal with sin and its consequence by bearing its consequence himself. Having fulfilled the law, having obeyed perfectly God's law, and then was crushed as though he violated every aspect of it. And then through his work, provides forgiveness in answer to the problem of sin. He's the only one. He's the only way. He's the only hope. It's hope in Christ alone. Amen? So he, he, he dealt with sin, and that was indeed the very heart and purpose of his ministry. Jesus said in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and lay down his life as a ransom for many. In John 12.47, Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The next time he comes, he's coming to judge. In John 1, John the Baptist, verse 29, John the Baptist, he's preaching repentance. Israel, repent. Prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the world. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what's forgiveness? Pardon. Forgiveness is pardon. It's a very personal setting. You ever sinned against someone and you're thinking, how could they ever forgive me? And then by grace they forgive you because they understand something, the grace of God. They pardon you. David, the greatest king of Israel. King David, mighty King David, presided over the golden age of Israel. Leading the people, gifted man, musician, warrior, poet. And the scripture says a man after God's own heart. The mighty David. 1 Samuel 13, 14. The man after God's own heart. Because of his extraordinary devotion to God. A recipient of, of grace. David falls into grave sin, Amen. Deep sin, murder, lies, deception, adultery. And despite David's infidelity, faithlessness, the scripture says God remembered his sin no more. Now at the outset here, David's sin is very serious. His adultery, serious, to say the least. Murder, serious, to say the least. Manipulation, lies, yes. David's strolling about on his roof, the roof of his palace. Scripture says he was supposed to have been at war. So here he is getting up probably in the middle of the day, and he looks out, and he sees this uh, beautiful woman uh, bathing, And he could have turned his gaze away, 
But he, he finds himself drawn in and tempted by another man's wife, lusting for something that's not his. So there's lust, there's envy. So he's consumed then in his lust, and then he uses his authority to send for the woman. Authority given to him by God. And then he ends up fathering her child, and then to cover his sin, he he manipulates a scenario with one of his commanders out in the field in the heat of battle, you know, retreat, leave your eye up front, let him be overcome. And certainly he was. So David uh, had sinned not only against Bathsheba, but against uh, Uriah, against Israel itself. He's the representative head. He's the king of the nation. But having sinned against all those people, in, in David's response to this sin, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. God takes David back anyhow. In spite of himself, in spite of his sin, this is the most surprising thing in the world, amen? To be accepted by God in spite of ourselves. Does David deserve it? No. Is it because David repented? No. It's solely due to the grace of God, which brought forth the repentance of David. Solely by grace. This is serious stuff. He's forgiven because Jesus had determined before the foundation of the earth to come and deal with sin by bearing the penalty of sin upon himself. That's why he's forgiven. This is why David was forgiven. Because Jesus died and his blood was poured out for many, as the scripture says, for the forgiveness of sins. David's part of it. We read David's response to the whole situation in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Psalm 51, verse 1. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And then the next verse, he says, you know, I was brought forth in iniquity. and sin, my mother conceived me. So here David can count on that forgiveness... And that is the forgiveness of God, though he was fully deserving to be punished and punished eternally. Had he not even committed murder or adultery, he deserved punishment. You deserve punishment. I deserve punishment. And when I witness to people, you've heard me say it, you deserve to be next to me in hell. That's what I deserve. I deserve hell. I deserve the depth of hell. So God's forgiveness here is, is not based on, Dave, on David repenting hard enough. If you just repent hard enough. Right? If you show enough tears and enough sorrow, then God will forgive you. No, it's all based upon the atoning work of Jesus Christ. 
God forgives us not because of us. Amen? Not how we respond, but because of His Son, who came to show us what steadfast love and mercy is. Amen? It's because of Him. The forgiveness of sins. That's why the forgiveness through Jesus is forever. It's eternal. In Micah 7, we read this, verse 18. Who's a God like you? Okay, God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. Amen? Amen. Never make that mistake. The God of the Old Covenant is a God of wrath. God's wrath has never, ever been more vivid than it is in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, with the crushing of Jesus Christ. Amen? God's killed a lot of people. Amen? But he's only killed one innocent person. One. His son. To deal with sin. To deal with the penalty of sin. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? You're his inheritance in Christ. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. So the prophet there emphasizes the uniqueness of the Lord's forgiveness, revealing that no man-made deity, any religious system is man-made, and no man-made deity can offer such pardon as this. It's the one true God through his son Jesus Christ, the covenant Lord of Israel, offering this forgiveness to his people. Verse 19 of Micah 7 shows us that that God casts our sins into the depths of the sea when he forgives us, right? We read in Scripture that God remembers our iniquities. He remembers our sin no more. He removes them as far as the east is from the west, right? That doesn't mean that he actually forgets our sins, right? He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. So what Micah means and what the scripture means when he says he remembers our sins no more is that he no longer holds our sins against us when he forgives us. Amen? Never to be counted against you. Ever. They were laid upon Christ. So those whom God forgives, are forgiven indeed. That's what the scripture tells us. That's what's being explained there in Micah. It's not that he actually forgets. Simply, he no longer holds our wickedness against us when we trust in Christ. It's through the blood of Christ alone. So through the blood of Christ, he sees us as righteous. He sees us as acceptable. We're accepted in the Son, amen? When he sees you, he sees his son, as I say. He sees, he sees his son because you're in Christ. Christ is in you. He's, you are his purchased possession. That's why Paul talks about justification. Paul's favorite way of talking about the forgiveness of sins is justification. Listen to what he says. God forgives on the basis of Christ. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood that is fully satisfying God's wrath by way of his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That sweet name. Just something about that name. See, only the God of Scripture is both just and justifier. Amen? Only the God of Scripture. All other gods of this world who are no gods at all, okay, I'm speaking of religious systems here, they're run by demons. Every single religion is run by demons, masquerading as gods, small g. All those false deities, all these religious systems compromise their self-proclaimed righteousness when they forgive because there's no atonement made. There's no atonement. They don't demand true atonement for sin. The one true God does. And it's in his only son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, in light of the entire Bible, God's forgiveness is incomparable because he forgives us in Christ Jesus without compromising his holiness. You get that? Without compromising his holiness. Any other deity, man-made deity, compromises their quote-unquote holiness, but not the one true God. He's just and the justifier of sinners like you and me. For he made him, the scripture says, 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. In him. Beautiful. So our forgiveness is based on Jesus and therefore our forgiveness is forever because Jesus is eternal. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the provision. And that provision is to be received by faith. By faith. You believe this. That is, you believe God. You don't just believe about him. You believe God. You believe his gospel. You believe his way. You believe his truth. And you gain life. Everlasting. So when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sin... We mean that our glorious God, the one true God, at the cost of his only, one and only, beloved Son on the cross, purchased for us what we could never gain on our own. It comes by way of faith and trust in his Son. We have to look away from ourselves. Amen? Never look inside. Tell your, your, your friends who aren't believers, you know, you know, if they're looking within. Don't look within. There's nothing but corruption there, right? You will deceive yourself. It's always looking outside of ourselves. 
Because the gospel comes from without, not from within. The good news comes down to us. Amen? And it's always been that way, friends. Old covenant, new covenant, it's always been that way. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Glory to God. Amen. Amen. You can rest well.